Hello and welcome to another edition of Sojourners in the Storm Bible Study. Today we're going to be covering 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the greatest defense. So I, I pray that you guys are enjoying these studies. I pray that they're helping you guys to, to learn, maybe even come to know the Lord. You know, that's the, the whole point of this, is to get the gospel out into the world. Um, so uh, I pray today that this would find you in a place of need. Uh, let's open in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to share your good news uh, with the world, Lord, with anybody that might need it. Father, I pray for those that would hear today uh, or, or at any point in time, Lord, as this is cast out over the Internet and into um, into the hands of, of everybody, Lord. I pray that anybody that would hear this would be blessed by it. Father, I pray that your word would come forward and not my own. Father, I pray and, and I just thank you, Lord, for, for everything, Lord. Father, I pray and ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, have you ever found yourself caught up in a really good court drama? Whether it's a movie or a television show, it always makes for good watching, right? You know, I know one of my favorites is Law & Order SVU. And when I hang out with my grandma, it's always Dateline at night. You know, my mom is hooked on court TV shows. They're riveting. In fact, in 1995, it's, an es it's estimated 150 million Americans watched the O.J. Simpson trial on television. You know, I remember it being uh, during the daytime, as 57% of Americans tuned in and watched the lawyers duke it out verbally for close to eight months. You know, I was like 12 years old when that was happening then, but I still remember it, day, uh, you know, clear as day. You know, summer vacation, you're sitting there watching the O.J. trial. You know, we're fascinated as a country, as a society, with watching criminals and the accused face their accusers and ultimately be handed down their punishments. But what if I told you that we're on trial every day? I mean, me and you, uh, for the things that we do. What if I told you that we face not penalties, not fines, not short sentences, but eternity in heaven or hell with each verdict? How would that impact your daily life? You know, knowing that each decision you make could mean your soul. It's kind of heavy to think about, right? It's, but it's something that we do face every single day. You see, our decisions, all of them, have consequences. There will always be an effect related to what we do or how we act. You know, as believers, we understand that we are guilty of sin. We understand that we have fallen short, that we are dead in our trespasses, and that we have lost the battle concerning our own merit, because no matter how good a person is, a person can never be perfect. And that's why we turn to Jesus as our Savior, right? We know and come to an understanding that God is holy, that He is set apart, that He is the standard of perfection. You know, we talked a little bit about this last week, he is the light that reveals our sin to us. As we get into His Word, He gives us some pretty heavy commands to live by, and rightfully so. Because if His standard is perfection, anything that we do makes us imperfect. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, He tells us, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. But are these standards justified for us to live by? Well, let's look at it first here in Leviticus. You know, we're told, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt. You know, we know that God liberated the nation of Israel out of bondage 
in, of Egypt. Uh, they were slaves and completely dominated by Egyptian rule after settling there some 400 years prior to the Exodus to seek refuge from famine that had consumed the world. But how do we end up in bondage? Well, we ourselves get caught up in sin. It starts small, but we start getting more and more desensitized to it until eventually we're enslaved by it, and it controls us. How do we get into that sin? Well, we find it as some sort of a comfort, right? Some sort of uh, a means of appeasing the flesh. And the more and more we stay in it, the more and more we get hooked into it, the more and more we are enslaved by it. You know, it becomes our identity, uh, what people know us by. It becomes a reflection of our character. Whether your vocabulary is pure sewage or you're a serial killer, your name becomes synonymous with your sin. Your sin becomes your master. Now God frees us in our time after the cross from the bondage of our sin. You know, we may not be enslaved by a people like Israel, but the same principle applies as we are being released from that bondage. We are no longer controlled by that sin because it's taken away from us. Um, but what does God ask from us in return from our freedom? Well, it says here in Leviticus again, to be your God. In return, he asks that we, instead of focusing our attention on our sin and the sin nature that has dominated us for our whole lives, we focus on him who saved us from that bondage. Instead of worshiping and giving ourselves over to the things that were killing us, we give ourselves over to God who saved us, and he gives us eternal life. But what does that mean for us? Well, God says, uh, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Well, that means that we change our ways and start living holy lives. Lives that are set apart, no longer slaves to sin and worldly lust, but lives of sacrifice and virtue. We become different because God is different from everything the world can offer. We put aside the sin that consumed us and move toward a better life. We descend the mountain of sin. You know, take for example at your birth. You're in a valley, right? You're in the lowest plane as far as sin is concerned. Still not sinless, but, you know, we're, we're, we're there. We're as pure as we can be. Well, as you start to get older, you start to climb the mountain of sin. Right? It starts with a little lie here. We still something here or there, a piece of candy, whatever. But as you get older, you know, these things start to build up in our lives. And it's all of us. It doesn't matter if you're born in a Christian home and, and, uh, or if you're you know, raised out on the streets, whatever. We're all going to sin. We're all going to fall short. You know, for some of us, the mountain's a little bit steeper. But uh, you know, God saves us all equally. And that's the awesome part. But just think about climbing a mountain. As you're going up this mountain, uh, things are starting to happen, right? Your legs start to get tired. You get a little bit weary. You get to the steep, spot, uh, steep spots, and it's a little bit hard to keep climbing this mountain. What happens when you get to the top, say, of like a Mount Everest or something like that? Well, the air is really thin, right? It's hard to breathe. It's tough to survive. Well, that's what happens as we climb this mountain of sin. The further and further you get up into it, the harder and harder your life is going to be. But what God does is He comes and He takes that out of us. And so we start to descend that mountain of sin. We start to move back down towards that clean path of living. You know, our sin is wiped away at the peak of that mountain. It is no more. But the journey is not complete there. You know, our lives are a walk. We live an active life as Christians. 
in moving away from sin and removing that sin nature as our character grows. You know, we have the Holy Spirit given to us as a teacher. That teacher convicts us and it guides us. It gives us steps down to that down the steep cliffs of sin as we get further away from there. You know, the lower we get in the mountain, the more we can look back and see how hard it was to get where we were and how much easier it is getting away from that sin and into the holy lands of life, right? Our lives are so much easier after the ensnarements of sin. And you know, when we get saved, most of us, it's going to be the big stuff that's taken away first, right? The drinking, the swearing, the, the fighting, all that stuff. But after that, you've got to start dealing with the little things. Controlling your tongue, that's a big one. That's a tough one. You know, it, it, it's not easy, but it's the life that we're called to. And so we have to actively be working on that. We have to actively be thinking about that. But what happens to us if we do sin, even after we're saved? We're all going to sin. We're all going to fall short. None of us are perfect, right? Does that mean that we are out of God's will? I don't think so. And let's take a look at what John has to say about that. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So our first point today is, Jesus is my means of salvation and justification. Our whole lives, after coming to the cross of Christ again, is to move away from sin. That is our purpose. Well, not our complete purpose. Our purpose is to know God and to make Him known. But we do that by our character. We do that by what God has done in our lives. We are a reflection of Jesus Christ and, and what He can do. You know, His glory comes from changing us. So the first thing that we have to really do is we have to learn to grow in character and compassion. Sin makes a person selfish. We now live lives for others and not for ourselves. You know, the day that I professed Christ and got saved, the evangelist that was there uh, teaching that day gave me a bumper sticker that had one word on it. It was others. And, you know, I put it on my truck. I don't have that truck anymore. But it reminded me every single day, every time I got out of uh, my truck and, and walked to work, I saw that bumper sticker that said others. It said, think about other people. You know, put others above yourself. Uh, you know, that helps you not to sin against them. You know, it makes you aware of other people's feelings. It makes you aware of other people's um you know, problems and things that they might be going through, to be compassionate of others, to think about others. When you think about others before yourself, it's really hard to sin. Um, you know, we're no longer living for ourselves. We are living for others. Jesus did not live for himself. He lived for us, right? He sacrificed himself for us. And so that's something that we need to start doing in our own lives. You know, You know, thinking of things like that, it helps us to get away from the enslavement of sin. You know, John is writing to remind us of a few things here. One, that we are no longer living, uh, that we are no longer living a life, we are now living a life in an exposed atmosphere of light. You know, the world is now watching as we operate in light and not in darkness. We have accepted the standard of Christ and strive for it. And second, that we are part of something bigger now. We are adopted into the family of Christ. We are, of course, part of the body of Christ, but we are also now family. 
We are intimate and not just functioning members. We have a closeness to God that we never had before. You know, this is the family epistle, the epistle of 1 John. It teaches us to be like the father, the head of the family. You know, what happens when you are growing up, right? And you have problems and you have these things to to uh, be taken care of. Well, you go to your dad, right? We have an open door to the father, uh, uh, you know, God. We can always go there. I know with my dad, if anybody ever bugged me, I go straight to him and he took care of that problem. It's the same thing with the Lord. You know, anything, we can open up to Him. We can bear our hearts to Him. He is always there for us. You know, um, we have examples of that also as we look at people like John. Um, letter A, we have examples of wisdom that encourage us to grow in character. You know, John writes, My Little Children. We remember that he was in his 80s when he wrote this epistle. And he is writing to a younger generation of believers. He's been brought through the battles at this point. We recall he was uh, was named among with his, along with his brother James, the sons of thunder, because he wanted to call down fires from heaven on the Samaritans, because they did not receive the messengers Jesus had sent before him. You know John was rebuked; he failed so many times, just as we do. But his experience and trials brought him wisdom. You know we need to look at those around us often and listen, because a lot of the things we go through, somebody has been through before us. You know, we can learn from uh, from them, both good and bad. And I think it's best that we're discerning about all things, that we take the best and we chuck the rest. But we can see the path through the experiences of others. Sometimes our escape from sin is hard. We want the easy way out always, but often our lives require us to push through the thorny branches of life, only to come out on the other end not wanting to go back. You know, the wisdom and experience of others is something that shows us that it can be done. It's something that we can lean on, that we can ask another person to show us. You know, what John is getting at is that by the instruction and encouragement and by the testing of our faith, we can learn to get through those thorn bush, thorns and push forward with the new nature, a nature of holiness and godly character. And although we will never be perfect, uh we will always be in Christ justified. So let her be here. Jesus is my justifier and uh, before the Father. So reading verse 2 again, it says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, we know we're all going to sin at some point and fall short. And... By at some point, let's be honest, it's going to happen often, right? No matter how hard we try, we are always growing, and in that growth, we are still failing. But that does not mean that we've lost our salvation. It does not mean that we do not have faith. It means that we are human. Remember, nobody is perfect, and so we can take comfort in this, that we have an advocate with the Father. You know, think about that. The word advocate is translated from the Greek word parakletos, which means comforter. We see that a few other times in the Bible. Uh, the first time being in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 16. And it says, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you forever. So the word helper comes from parakletos also. Um, the word helper is derived from the same Greek word. Jesus is explaining to his disciples that upon his departure, God will be sending the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. 
in his stead to help us through. What we get in our earthly presence is the indwelling Holy Spirit as our earthly helper. In John 14, 17, it says, The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You know, what we have with Jesus as our advocate is a heavenly helper or defender in front of the Father. If we on earth are falling short, we in heaven are being held accountable for it. Some examples from Scripture are Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. It says, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. You know, these are the books that where our works are written down in heaven, where they are read out in front of us that we are judged by at, at the time of judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. You know, that's heavy. Everything we do is being recorded. We have to remember that. But you know what? With Christ, it is all forgiven. In Christ, it is all taken away. And when we do fall short, Jesus is there to take care of us. You know, furthermore, we're actively being accused in heaven of our transgression by Satan. Scripture gives examples of that also. If we look at Job chapter 2, starting with verse 4, it says, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for sin, uh, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for us. Uh, give for his life but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face in revelation chapter 12 verse 10 it says then i heard a loud voice saying in heaven now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our god and the power of his christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our god day and night has been cast down you know basically what we've read here is look Satan does have an audience with God. He does go before him, and he does stand there, and he accuses us day and night, as it says right here. We are constantly being attacked and bombarded by this. But praise God that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous, pleading our case. He is our great defender. He is our lawyer in front of the Father, the ultimate judge. Uh, you know, when the devil throws an accusation, and we here on earth confess our sin... Jesus stands as our defender and advocates for us. You know, imagine a court case like that on TV. You know, we're sitting there watching it and all the worst stuff is coming out about this person and Jesus is sitting there in front of the judge saying, no, he's mine. It's taken care of. I have it. Um, in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, it says, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus is not only perfect and just, meaning anything that he decides is right because of his perfection, but he is the justifier of us by our faith in his perfection. And so when we acknowledge our failures to him, he justifies us in front of the Father and removes the offense that we have committed. He is our heavenly comforter and reconciler as he is the means of our forgiveness and our justification. Remember in First uh, John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
You know, there is nothing that we do that God is unaware of. Therefore, we must be accountable of our actions and faithful in our confession as we work with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, our earthly comforter, and confess to our heavenly, our heavenly comforter, our advocate Jesus, and receive his defense and justification in front of the Father. God is so good to us in giving us a means of forgiveness. You know, we live lives of accountability, and that begins with our accountability to God. We should be working to never give the enemy a reason to accuse us, but know that we have the grace of God as our greatest defense and comfort. You know, the truth is that we have all sinned, and I know that I'm bringing this up a lot, but we have. You know, we may not think we have, but if you think about it, if our standard is perfection, God's standard, uh, because He is perfect, then any offense we commit is our, is our admission of guilt. We know through the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments the things we are to adhere to. You know, many people say that we're not under the law of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament therefore is no longer useful. Although they are correct, we are no longer under the law of the Old Testament, you know, it's still very much relevant because we get history from it, as well as we see the principles of the New Testament drawn out within it. But we use the Old Testament law as our guide to holiness. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, it says, Where is boasting then? It, it is excluded by, by what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, we then make void the law through faith. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You know, we are now under the law of grace. Faith is the new law of grace in which we work not to transgress, but when we do, the law of grace is our means of reconciliation because the price of, for our transgression has already been paid. Uh, in verse 2 here it says, And he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So let us see, Jesus has paid the price for, our sin, for my sins on the cross. You know, the word propitiation in this verse uh, means to become a substitute for, or to, to, to take the place of. You know, Jesus took the place of me and you in the just punishment that we deserve in order to save us through faith in Him to bring us into saving grace. That means that every time we sin, we are found guilty, that the guilt of that sin has already been paid for. Our role then becomes that of the confessor as we align ourselves with God's holy word, recognize our sin, and move forward towards repentance. But, you know, God's grace, as awesome it is as it is, is not to be abused. You know, we do not have a blank check for sin. We have a relationship that should lead us towards less sin as we fret the idea of putting more on our Savior. You know, it's inevitable, yes, and it's already been paid for. It's already been written down. But, you know, as we grow in character, we should be sinning less. A person's view of grace gives great insight to, into his or her relationship with God, right? If a person is just out there sinning and doing whatever they want, well, do they really know Lord, the Lord? Do they really know what He went through for them? 
to, to get to that point, you know, you kind of have to take a look back at the cross and that fateful day when Jesus was nailed to it in our place, mine and yours. You know, it should elicit a reaction. Think about the betrayal of one of his disciples first. Then the unfair, unjust trials that he faced before Jewish courts. The interrogations by Pilate and the beatings from the Roman soldiers that he took that night. The mocking he endured. You know, people spitting on his face and putting on his, uh, a beard of thorns and pressing it into his scalp as the blood ran down his face. Then think about the scourging. <sighs> Most men don't survive a scourging. Forty lashes with a tool called a cat of nine tails. Now that's a whip with a bunch of tails with barbs of lead or bone or, or iron attached to the ends. They were designed to grab skin and flesh whenever they, they, they made contact with the person's back and rip it from their bodies. You know, most people die from blood loss and exposure of organs. Shock and pain was excruciating. Then think about having to carry a large wooden cross after that up a steep hill with the whole city watching and mocking him, the nails piercing his hands and feet, and then being hung, thirsty and tired, beaten, weary, up on that cross for me and you. And upon that cross, he bore my sins, your sins, the sins of the whole world. And at the same time, he bore the punishment that each one of us deserves for us. You know, he went through so much that day. You know, think about Psalm 22, when he's up there and he's struggling. And he says, my bones are sticking out. My, my, my tongue is like wax. He, he was dried out. He was hurting. In the spiritual realm, he was sitting there and he's looking. And it says the bulls of Basham were, were mocking him. They were around him. There were demon, uh, demonic entities around him all the time. But he was taking that for me and you. And, you know, not just the demons that were mocking him, but the people around him. We can go back and we can read the Gospels and we can see nobody believed him. But what did he do on that cross? In his compassion, he saved the thief that had faith in him. He saved the thief that recognized him. You know, we can be that thief here and there. Because he's died for all of us. He took that place. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You know, Jesus came to be our perfect substitute. The perfect sacrifice. Now, remember, this epistle is written in defense of the truth. We remember the Gnostics were coming and they were uh, teaching false doctrines in the church, uh, making the claim that Jesus was a phantom, that he wasn't a man, that he was not physical. Others claimed that he was not a, that he was just a normal man, with the spirit of Christ in him from the moment that he was baptized until just before the cross. The Bible tells us that he was fully God and fully man at all times. You know, unless, anything less than that leaves us dead in our sins. Because the price we believe to have been paid remains an open balance. If Jesus is not who we believe him to be. You know, we believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, who came as a man, as a man, the God-man, and died on the cross and was resurrected. He is the perfect substitute. He is the perfect sacrifice for us. Because he was man, he was sinless, he was spotless. In the Old Testament, when uh, a person was going to go offer a sin offering, they would bring the lamb to the priest, right? And so the priest would inspect the lamb, make sure it had no blemish, 
before they sacrificed it for the person. You know, and the uh, and, you know the blood was burned in the fire, and the, and you know the whole ritual was taking place. But with Jesus, he was inspected. He went through those trials. He went through three different trials that night, and each one of them found him blameless. Where they even had to make face accusations towards him. You know, he was the perfect substitute for us. And so, there's consequences, right? If the false teachers are correct, well, what happens? Then we're dead in our sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, starting with verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is preached that we have been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You know, all our faith is grounded in the fact that Jesus did come in a physical body as a man who was fully man and fully God at the same time, that he died on that cross, you know, it was checked by uh, checked out by the Roman soldiers, they verified him to be dead. Modern science today will actually back up the claim that if, you know, the, the accounts in John and the rest of the Gospels are true, then Jesus was in fact dead. He was placed in a grave, and three days later, he rose again. You know, after that, he was touched, he was handled, he ate, he was witnessed by over 500 different uh, people, you know, our faith depends on that. Our faith is based on the fact that Jesus is resurrected and, and, and that he was who he says he is. You know, this is the beauty of his glory, though, that by that, by our faith in that statement that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and that he died in fulfillment of the scriptures to take our sins away, that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of, sins of the world, we are justified by that belief. And this is the beauty of His glory. That we, that He would take lowly sinners and bear the brunt of all their sin upon Himself. And if you look at the scripture, He carries the scars of our sins uh, uh, for eternity also. You know, He holds that with Him. But His glory comes from the transformation that comes in our lives. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne... And of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You know, we may have scars and wrinkles caused by age and hard lives of sin that we once lived, but we bear nothing in comparison to the scars of the whole world that Jesus carries to this day for us. Not just for a select few, but for all of us. You know, God's glory comes in the fact also that he died for each and every one of us. Whether we believe or we don't believe, he still died for us. We just have to come to the point where we realize that, accept that, and ask for that forgiveness that he offers us. Verse 2 in First John says, And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So letter D, Jesus died for everybody that chooses to trust in him. You see, it doesn't matter if you were born in China or Africa, or Canada, or Brazil. For every and all, Jesus did ascend that hill. You know, we are 
all offered the gospel of grace and redemption. The, new, uh, the good news that we can all be saved through faith for the messes that we have made of our lives through sin. In John chapter 3 verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. In Titus chapter 2 verse 11 it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem from him uh, redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You know, how awesome is that? How many times do we see in scriptures that Jesus died for all of us? Not for a select few, not just for the Christians, not just for the saved, not just for the elect as the, uh, as the Calvinist might say, but for each and every person that decides to willingly put his faith in Jesus Christ, to hear the good news, to recognize their sin in their lives, Say, you know what? I fall short. I'm not good enough. Remember the old lie that we talked about a couple weeks ago that, you know, if we live good enough lives and, and mostly moral lives that we're going to get into heaven, that's not the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And our faith through him is what gets us there. He died for each and every one of us. He bore the sins of the world, not just a few, not just those that would come. Not just those from certain regions or different uh, cultures, whatever. He died for each and every person across this globe from the beginning of time until the end of time. It is just up to us to accept that blessing. That's the whole point. And you know, some of us might have not gotten there yet. Some of us are, you know, are, are dealing with things. Some of us are on the fence. But you know what Second Peter tells us this in chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, he is patient. He is waiting. We all have that opportunity to come to Christ. The world likes to categorize people by race and color and religion, but not so with God. In God's eyes, we are all precious and fearfully and wonderfully made. He loves us all of us, and wants us to be in fellowship with Him. But that requires a, a response from us. You know, every invitation requires a response. The response that we have is to enter into a relationship with Christ. You know, a, a partnership. We have a unilateral contract with the Lord. It's an if-then type of deal for us, for all of us. You know, we each make that personally and maintain our end of that deal. You know, God says... As we have seen in the passages we just read, that if we believe, then we are saved. You know, our response is part of our actions, repentance, faith, and trust in God. His response is salvation, justification, and eternal life. You know, it doesn't matter where we've come from or what we've done. If we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved and forgiven. You know, it doesn't matter if you were a murderer, an adulterer, a fornicator, had an abortion, or if you were the abortionist, 
If you give your life to God and repent, turn away from those sins, even if it costs you everything, you gain eternity. You know, but if you refuse and continue on, well, the choice is yours. And that means eternity in hell. It's that simple. You know, that's the biggest decision we have to make in our lives. And it should be the easiest. You know, live a life of virtue. Live a life of good character, of high moral upstanding. You can do it without the Lord, but it's not going to get you anywhere. Do it in the Lord, and you'll find some joy there. Knowing that God has you, that He's taking care of you. That when you fall short, He's always there watching you. He's got you. In Matthew, well, before I get ahead of myself there, um, you know, for the believers, the mature in Christ, the, those that are coming also, we have a responsibility now also. Just as John wrote these things to, uh, to us, that we wouldn't sin, well, hey, look, we have a message that we've got to take out to other people also, right? To those that don't hear. Maybe if you're hearing this message, share it. You know, that's, uh, that's what it's here for. You know, there are those of us that know the Lord, and there are those of us that do not. You know, we know who we are, and if we know Him, we have our marching orders from Jesus to go and make disciples. In Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus said, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of, wait for it, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does he say? He says, go out and take the message of grace. Take the message of hope. Take the message of forgiveness. Take the message of change, a clean slate, eternity, life, all of that stuff to every nation, every tongue, every creed, you know, every tribe out there. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. That's the glory of God. He did it for everybody. You know, our job is to go out and spread that message. To give hope to the hopeless. Because we are living in a hopeless world right now. And it is going to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. And so, you know, we need to step up as believers. We need to step up as the church. And we need to do the work of evangelists. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, it says, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know, we are all full-time ministers in the Lord. When we accept Christ. So we do have to do the work of the evangelist. You know, we are out there to present the gospel to the world. You know, we have the good news of salvation. And it's up to us to love people and to share it. Because without it, our world is doomed and many will die. The second death of eternal separation from God. So let us be in full remembrance of God's grace, mercy, and action on our behalf and give that opportunity for forgiveness to every man, woman, and child on this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Father, thank you for going to the cross from us, Lord. And Lord, you know, today I just want to, to ask you again, Lord, as I give my life to you, Lord, as I turn over everything I have to you, Lord, Lord, that you would just make me clean, that you would just give me new birth, Lord, a new life. Lord, show me your plan for me, Lord. Take me through 
the trials. Take me through the changes. Take me through whatever it takes, Lord, to be more like you, to walk with you, Lord, to know you, to understand you, to love you more, Lord, because I know that you could never love me more than you do now. Lord, that your love is perfect, that your love is kind, that your love is true, and your love is eternal, Lord. Father, thank you so much for that, Lord. Praise you for all that you do for us and all that you give to us. Father, I thank you and I pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.